you have your Bibles this morning, will you please join me? The book of Hebrews, chapter number 9. Hebrews, chapter number 9. Uh, this uh, morning, we're going to be looking at this chapter that contains uh, 28 verses. These 28 verses compromise uh, or comprise, if you would, of the teaching of how Jesus is more excellent than the old sanctuary. In regards to that, our minds have been thinking about uh, what these Jews that are Christians that have been born again, they're wanting to walk away from their faith, they're wanting to walk back into Judaism, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that, because Judaism is a dead religion. As a matter of fact, uh, the application that we can have today from this passage of Scripture and from the entire book of Hebrews is just simply this. All religions are dead religions. The only way, the only way to have fellowship and communion with God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said over in the book of John, I'm the way, the truth, I'm the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The only way to have a relationship with God is you must come through Jesus Christ. And that's what this book is all about. That's what the entire Bible's about, pointing us back to Jesus. Well, if Jesus is the way, if Jesus is the truth, if Jesus is the life, then why do we want to go back to those old ways? Why do we want to go back and try to do something in order to get to heaven when Jesus has already done it all? Well, the answer to that question is quite simple. We are human. We're man. We, because we are humankind, we have this tendency to want to prove ourselves to God. And in proving ourselves to God, Jesus says this. He says, if you want to prove yourself to me as a born-again child of God, don't go back to your old way of life or the old way you used to be religious, but present your body a living sacrifice unto me. That is your reasonable service. That is your daily act of worship, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. And don't get off the altar. Stay on the altar of God and let him use you for his glory, for his honor, and for his praise. And so when you come to this chapter 9 of this wonderful letter to the Hebrews, we have already studied and already noticed how the writer says, Look, Jesus Christ is more than an excellent Savior. And he is more excellent than the prophets, than the angels. He's more excellent than Moses and Aaron, the old Levitical order. He's more uh, excellent than the old covenant. And then he's going to say this, and this is chapter 9. He says, not only is he better than the old covenant, he's better than the old sanctuary. And when he uses the term sanctuary, he's going to be referring, the first response is to the whole, that is the tabernacle of God. As a matter of fact, when you look at chapter 9, it can actually be divided up into two categories. The first category is found in chapter 9, verse 1, he goes all the way down to verse 10. That's the first section. He's going to talk about the old sanctuary. He's talking about the tabernacle. And then he transitions in verse number 11, and from verse 11 all the way to verse 28, he's going to talk about the new sanctuary. The new sanctuary is Jesus Christ. And what he's going to do is do a comparison contrast and says, and just simply say this, when you look at that old tabernacle, the old sanctuary, that old sanctuary is a representation, a picture, a copy of of the new sanctuary, which is Jesus. And he's just simply saying this. In order to understand the old tabernacle, you got to understand you're looking at a copy of Jesus. 
When you see the old tabernacle, you ought to see Jesus. And the only way for you to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Now, it's a copy. It's not the real thing. So, because it's a copy, this copy is going to be done away with, but the real thing is coming. And that real thing, the writer of Hebrews says, has come. And that person that is the real thing is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the God-man. He's 100% God, 100% man. And he died on the cross, and he was buried, on the th- or buried, and on the third day he rose again. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he has prepared a place for us in heaven. And you ought to know something about heaven. In heaven, there's a sanctuary. And this sanctuary that's in heaven is where Jesus is. Jesus, the sanctuary, went into the heavenly sanctuary and made intercession for us so that by his blood we can bridge the gap over to a relationship with God. You see, before we got saved, we did not have a relationship with God. That relationship was broken, and it was broken because of sin. But thank God. He promised us, even all the way back in Genesis, that he would make a way for mankind to have a relationship with him. And that way is none other than Jesus Christ. And those that come to Jesus Christ by faith can be saved. And that salvation consists of having a new relationship with God, a strong relationship with God, a relationship where he leads and guides, where he uh, teaches and helps us live this life in this wicked world. And these are all the things that the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey to these Jewish believers who've accepted Jesus Christ but are struggling with the persecution that's happening in their area. They're struggling with being drawn back or pulled back into this old way of Judaism and the writer says you can't go back you can't go back because what's back there in the past Judaism and every religion is dead we serve a risen Savior and so the writer of Hebrews simply says this the old sanctuary was built with the materials made by man But the new sanctuary is made by materials of Jesus Christ that has been manifested in the heavenlies. We have a home in heaven, brothers and sisters. This world is not our home. As awful as this world is, we've got a better place that we're going to. As a matter of fact, as born-again children of God, we need to go ahead and live up there. We need to lock our gaze upon Jesus Christ and only glance at our problems. Isn't that the challenge we have today? Think about all of our problems and we want to dwell on our problems and we want to lock our gaze on our problems and say, man, I got a problem with my spouse. I got a problem with my finances. I got a problem with my job. I got a problem with my mind. I got a problem. No, listen, the biggest problem that we have is the problem with our heart. It's desperately wicked and only Jesus Christ can cleanse it of its sin. 
Dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, if you're born again, stop locking your gaze on your problems and start locking your gaze on Jesus Christ and knowing that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that whatever comes against you shall not prosper. Why? Because greater is he that's in me that's in the world. And I will rejoice and have joy in my trials, in my tribulations, in my difficulties. Why? Because I'm building my faith off of the challenges that I have in my life. Dear friend, don't you dare waste the challenge and the problem that you have in your life. Don't waste it. Let God use that for his glory, for his honor, for his praise. Well, let me show you a couple of things about this text in regards to how Jesus is more excellent than the old sanctuary. If you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me point out a couple of verses in the Uh, where he talks about the old sanctuary and a couple about the new. Cast your eye, if you would, to verse number 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. Look at what the Scripture says. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which... Uh, were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation or time of Reformation. Now, he's not talking about the Reformation that we think about uh, that happened with Martin Luther. That's not the Reformation he's talking about. He's talking about the Reformation of Jesus Christ dying and being risen again and now sitting in the heavenlies. He goes more into this in verse number 24. Cast your eye to verse 24 and look at what he says. He says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures, there's that word again, of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often had suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die... But after this, the judgment. So Christ was also offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What's he talking about there? He's referring to when Jesus comes again, he's not coming to die on the cross. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm looking to him as coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not the one that has died for my uh, sins. He's already did that. He already died for my sins. His first coming. His second coming. He's coming to reign. You may be seated. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. There are several things here that I want you to notice as the writer of Hebrews points it out. There's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to cover everything. So let's just look at this as an overview this morning. And maybe one day here in the future, I'll dive in a little bit more in detail. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is the rooms of the earthly sanctuary. The rooms of the earthly sanctuary. As it relates to the tabernacle, we find here in this text that the writer is going to point out two specific rooms. There are two rooms to which he wants to call our attention to. The first room is the holy place. Look at what he says in verse number 1 and 2. 
He says, Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That's the tabernacle. He says in verse 2, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. He's referring here, if you would, to the holy place. That's what sanctuary means. Sanctuary means the holy place. Do we have that uh, image there this morning? Let's see if we can put that up. Here is a representation of the tabernacle. He's referring to the holy place. If you look at the top of this diagram, you'll see starting from the left, moving to the right, the holy of holies, the holy place, the outer court. I want you to notice that he's going to be dealing with two things in particular in this text. He's going to be dealing with the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. He's calling the Holy Place the sanctuary. And in the sanctuary, I want you to notice the three things. Number one, the table of showbread. Number two, the menorah. Number three, the altar of incense. Pay very close attention to these because he's going to say something specific and I don't want you to get confused in particular about the altar of incense. But we see in dealing here with the holy place, the first thing he points out is the lampstand. He points out the lampstand. That is what's called the menorah. And there in that lampstand, we see that that lampstand was placed next to the south wall of the tabernacle, according to Exodus chapter number 25, verses 31 through 40. It's found also in Exodus chapter 26, verse 35. We find that as it's placed next to the south wall of the tabernacle, it's made of gold and had seven lamps for burning olive oil. And it was to never, ever, ever go out. There was a representation here of which is of vital importance that you and I must understand. The representation of this candlestick is the representation of the fact that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He never goes out. This is a copy of showing how Jesus, the Messiah, is the light. Remember, it is a copy. It's not the real thing. Mankind had to maintain it. As a matter of fact, you'll find here in this passage of Scripture, he says in verse 1, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine services of a wor and a worldly sanctuary. There were these orders, there were these services, these rituals that they had to perform. And one of those rituals was making sure that that lampstand, that menorah stayed lit. It could not go out. That's the first thing he points out. Number two. The second thing he points out is the table of showbread. He says the table and then there the showbread there. On that table of showbread, we find that in Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 26, and Leviticus chapter 24. It was a table that was overlaid in gold on which were kept 12 loaves of bread that sat in two rows of six. These fresh loaves were brought in each and every Sabbath day. Now, many, many people have this great uh, disagreement about the Sabbath day. They say we should worship on the Sabbath day. They did worship on the Sabbath day in uh, Israel. But here's the difference. When Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus said you ought to worship on the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week for us in our culture? Sunday. That's why we're here today. Now, is Sabbath on a Saturday? Yes. Do some worship on that day? Yes. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said on the first day 
of the week. We are to come to worship. And so we say, see here that these loaves and these, these loaves that were brought in here were to come each Sabbath day, and the old were to be eaten by the priest, the old bread. They, the priest got to eat the bread. That's found over in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And again in Matthew chapter 12. What's the point of this, though, Pastor? The point is this. Remember, this is a copy. This is a shadow of things to come. The Messiah is coming. And just like the candlesticks represented Jesus as the light, so too the table of showbread illustrates that Jesus is the bread of life. life. It's a copy. It's a shadow. He says this is what's located in the sanctuary or the holy place. And then watch what happens. Not only does he talk about the holy place, he goes a step further in verses 3 through 5. And I've got to hurry or I'm not going to have enough time. He talks about the holy of holies. And he says this in verse 3 and he says, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer. And the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had, uh, the, that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and uh, the table of the covenants and was overlaid with cherubims and the gold shadowing of the mercy seat of which cannot uh, now speak particularly. Let me say this. Um, in our minds, in, in my generation's minds, when you think about the uh, ark of the covenant and what that looks like, I, we obviously always go back to the Bible. But if we ever were thinking about a physical representation of this, my mind always goes back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. How many remember that movie? All right, about the Ark of the Covenant. So we see here in this text what's in the Ark of the Covenant. I don't have time to dive into that, but I I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Pastor, wait a minute. Let's go back to the diagram. The altar of incense is not inside the Holy of Holies. Why would the writer of Hebrews include it into the Holy of Holies if it's not actually in the Holy of Holies? That is a great question. And it is very important that we understand why it's located where it's located. Now, again, this is a representation. This is not the actual Holy of Holies. So that, that altar of incense was very close to the veil. Very close to the veil. And because it was very close to the veil, what would happen, they would take the altar. You see the altar of burnt offerings? Every day they would take uh, spices, they would take uh, uh, those coals off of the altar, and they would come and they would put it into the altar of incense. And those spices and all were there. And As they were all there, they would have this sweet-smelling aroma. And this sweet-smelling aroma would permeate into the Holy of Holies, into the veil, and it would enter into the Holy of Holies. It was a beautiful representation of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the Holy of Holies, where actually, in fact, the Bible says that also in there is where the Spirit dwelled, was there. And so we see that physical representation, and we see that it permeated through the Holy of Holies. So in essence, it was in fact in the Holy of Holies by the spices, by the scent, it was in there permeating inside the Holy of Holies. This is why he makes this recommendation or or why he lays it out in the way that he did. This golden altar of incense is in the holy place with this wonderful aroma that's taking place there inside the Holy of Holies. The morning and the evening service were begun by the high priest offering this incense on this altar. And then 
once a year, we know that the high priest would take this censer of burning coals from the altar along with the incense into the holy place in and of itself. So it is appropriate to say that this, if you would, altar of incense is in fact inside the Holy of Holies. For it was mobile. It moved back and forth. While it was stationary in that place, it made its way into the Holy of Holies as a beautiful representation of the Holy Spirit. Dear friend, what a beautiful copy. What a beautiful shadow of how the Holy Spirit is indwelling inside of a born-again child of God. And wherever we go, the Holy Spirit goes to Amen. And then also he says here in the text, he gives us insight into the Ark of the Covenant. Again, I don't have time to go into all of this, but he talks about the things that are contained therein. Here lies, in essence, the rooms of the earthly sanctuary. Then he goes to number two. Here's the second thing he talks about. And this is found in verses 6 and 7. This is the rituals of the earthly sanctuary. The rituals of the earthly sanctuary. In verse 6 and 7, we see the activities that took place inside these rooms. Number one, the first thing you see is the holy place or the sanctuary. In verse 6, look what happens. Now, when these things thus were ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Every morning... Every morning and every evening, the priest would go into the holy place performing these services. Well, what were the services they were doing? According to the Bible, in Exodus chapter 27, they would trim the lampstands or trim the wicks there uh, in the, on the candles. They would trim those wicks and make sure that they were accurate and right. They would offer incense on the altar of incense. On the Sabbath day, the priest would replace the showbread. And remember, the, uh, the priest had to eat the old uh, showbread. So they had these rituals that they had to do every day. And then he goes into the Holy of Holies in verse 7. Look at what he says concerning that. But into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Here again, very self-explanatory. We see it in the Old Testament, but he tells us that once a year, the priest, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would first make sacrifice for himself, but spreading that blood on the uh, mercy seat for himself, and then also for the sins of the people. He could only do it once a year. He had to have a rope tied to his ankle in case he didn't confess all of his sins. If he didn't confess all of his sins, he would die. That's an important fact to remember as he's about to transition into the new sanctuary. But he says here, in regards to this earthly sanctuary, there were these rituals. And there, here are the rituals in verse 6 and 7. Then number 3. Let me move quick. I'm moving fast. If you're with me, say, we're with you, preacher. We're with you. Praise God. Number 3, verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 is the third point that he's going to give, and it's going to be the reasons for the earthly sanctuary. So here he's going to say, here are the reasons why we have this earthly sanctuary. Now remember, we've already said it. It's a copy. It's a shadow. But I want you to notice how he puts it here in verse number 8. He says, the Holy Ghost is this, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present. 
in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect pertaining to the conscience. He's simply saying here in these wonderful passages of Scripture, in particular verse 8, that this picture, this copy was just a symbol. It's a symbol in verse number 8. It's already stated the tabernacle and its service was a copy or a shadow of things to come. We find that again in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4 and 5. And in talking about that, there's this symbolism that takes place. Let's look at it one more time if we could. The symbolism that we're looking at in regards to the tabernacle, in particular the holy place, is the menorah, which is the candlesticks, which is representing that God is the light is the showbread, which is showing us, or, or that the Messiah is the only way to heaven, the light. The showbread, which is showing that Jesus is the bread of life. The altar of incense, which is showing us the Holy Spirit is mobile as the Holy Spirit enters and permeates into the veil, as well as the Holy Spirit permeating into our hearts so that we might have the Holy Spirit. And then the resting of God on the altar, if you would, or on the mercy seat as God rests within us. I'm telling you what, I'm so saved I can swing over hell on a dry corn stalk. It is talking and speaking and representing of eternal security. This is pointing to the fact that God's people God loves God's people Israel and not just the people of Israel but the people of the whole world and he rests upon them. Question, where is God right now? He's with us. He is with us. He is in this room. He is here with us today. The fact of the matter is simply this. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit dwelled inside of your heart. This is vitally important. How many dwellings are they when it comes to the Holy Spirit? One. One dwelling. How many fillings does occur over the life of a Christian? Man, I'm going to tell you what. The many, 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 many fillings filled with the Spirit. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm more filled with the Spirit this hour than I was last hour, David. I mean, really, fillings. I got freedom. I've got liberty by the Spirit of God. Now, what was wrong in the first service? Did you still have the Spirit of God? Yeah, I had the Spirit of God. But bless God, when you're teaching rather than preaching, in particular on the tabernacle, uh, especially at 8.15, there's a tendency to say, wake up! I mean, you just do that and it might... I didn't do that. I should have. It would have been funny if I did. (laughs) In fact, that was funny right there to see some of you. I mean, it just really was. Do you see the symbolism here? You say, if you see the symbolism, say, we do. We do. All right, all right. Let's go to the second thing. Not only does it say it's symbolism, but it's also a strategy. There's a strategy. Verse 9 and 10 talks about the strategy. He says, for which the figure for the time then present... He says, there's a reason why I gave it to you at that moment in time. And the strategy has always been that this will not be the final way that you get saved. The strategy has always been that the Messiah is going to come. And that Messiah is Jesus Christ. And and then look at what he goes on to say there in verse number 9. He says, in which, in the latter part of verse 9, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. That is, the priest couldn't become perfect by doing the sacrifice, and you cannot become perfect by doing the sacrifice. Why? Because that's not the strategy. The strategy is 
Jesus Christ. And then this is where he makes the transition. Hang in here with me. I'm going to try to go really fast because this is where it gets vitally important. This is two sermons that I'm trying to combine into one. Here's number four. Here's the fourth point. Don't miss it. The region of the new sanctuary. He shifts gear and says, okay, I'm not going to talk about the old sanctuary anymore. I want to talk about the new sanctuary. And the first thing I want to tell you is the region of the new sanctuary. Where is this located? This is found in verses uh, 11 and verse 24. Look at verse 11. He says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with by hands that is to say not of this building and then he's going to He's just going to lose his mind here and just go crazy in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. But let me call your attention, if I could, to verse number 24. Look at what he says. This is where he's getting to. He says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. They're symbols, if you would. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He says, Jesus Christ entered into the holy of holies, not into the earthly tabernacle, but into the heavenly tabernacle. And he made intercession for you and I, such so much the case that when he died on Calvary's cross and shed his blood, the veil on the earthly, in the earthly uh, sanctuary was ripped from the top to the bottom. He said, it is over. It is finished. No more priests going in there sprinkling on that mercy seat because the blood has been applied to the true mercy seat, not the copy. Man, I'm telling you, that'll set you free, won't it, sister? Good night of living. I'm telling you what. I, I mean, I just absolutely amazing. And where is it at? In heaven. The region of the new sanctuary. What does that mean? Two, two things, and I've got to hurry. Number one, it means it's greater. It's greater. It's not made with human hands. That's what the scripture says. And number two, it's grander. It is grand. The grandioseness of heaven. Listen, our minds can't even comprehend it. I bet if we could truly comprehend what heaven really is, we would absolutely lose our minds. I'm telling you what, it is a beautiful place. It is a grand place. The Bible says it's not made with hands. The Bible says it is in heaven itself where this tabernacle is. And he says that Jesus Christ now appears in the presence of God for who? For us. He's in in there for us. Can you imagine him there before the Father going, what about Bob down there? See, he's there in service. He loves you. He loves you. What about Shane down there? He loves you. There's Jill down there. He's in there for us. To God be the glory. He's in there for us. Number five. The fifth thing I want you to notice is the reality of the new sanctuary. The reality. In verses 12 through 15, he says, okay, here's the reality of the matter. Now you know where it's located. Here's the reality. The reality is found in in, in verses 12 through 15, and we see here how this new sanctuary was built and what it has accomplished. Let me show it to you. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is redemption. Look at what he says in verse number 12. He says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Not only is he in the heavenlies for us, 
but he died on Calvary's cross so that he might redeem us. So what does that word redemption mean? To make the relationship right again. Well, what do you mean, Pastor? When Adam and Eve sinned, remember, Adam sinned willingly. And the Bible says, according to Romans chapter 5, For as for whereby one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. You see, Adam gave us, a, a, we inherited this sin nature. And listen, we're sinners by, the, by our very nature. And so because of that sin, it separated us from God. And in order to get to God, there needed to be a bridge. God said in Genesis chapter 3, that bridge is going to be the Messiah. Remember, that was the strategy the whole time. And that strategy was to redeem mankind back to God so that we could have a relationship with God the Father again. And so that we find here that in regarding the reality of this new sanctuary, the first, infer- the first part of it was redemption. Redemption. The second part of it, watch this, is reconciliation. What do you mean? Look at what the Scripture says. Again, we're going on through uh, verses 13, 14, and 15. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes and of a heifer sprinkling of the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, whom through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purged our conscience from the dead, dead works to serve the living God, and for this cause he is the mediator of the new... New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that we that were under the first testament that that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance not only have we been redeemed we've been reconciled and we can never be separated from God again never And that's vitally important because we're living in a day-to-day that says, well, you know what, you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. The Scripture says that it's eternal redemption. It's an eternal reconciliation. And and he's sharing this with these, these Jewish believers. He says, listen, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape Jesus Christ. You can't run away from your salvation. You'll be practicing a dead religion if you go back to Judaism. You say, well, um, pastor said, can you help me here? Um, what about that individual out there today that gets saved and, and, they, and they say they're born again and, and they walk away from God and they walk away and they go back to their old ways? One of two things. Watch this. Number one, they will feel so much grief because the Holy Spirit will be pounding upon them and they're experiencing what's called the prodigal son syndrome. That's what I called it, the prodigal son syndrome where they will not be able, they will not be happy, they will wake up in the muck and mire of the pigsty, and they'll come back to Jesus if they're saved. Here's the second one. They never truly gave their heart to Jesus. They walked aisle, put their name on a, on a sheet, on a list, on a roll, on a church roll. They may have gotten the water and got wet, but they never truly, truly confessed their sin and recognized Christ as the Messiah. Why? Because when, when you do that, the Holy Spirit's deposited inside of you and you are reconciled and redeemed. And dear friend, I'm going to be honest with you. As a born-again child of God, you can't get away with nothing. The, the, I mean, I'm talking about the Father knows it all. I've got to tell this story and then I've got to hit this, this film because I'm out of time. But thank you all for being patient with me. I know going through Hebrews is very difficult. But, but, but when I was a child, 
My brother and I love to play cowboys and Indians. Or good guy, bad guy. It doesn't matter. We, I mean, we, we, just as long as I was always the good guy and he was always the bad guy. And it always ended the same. I always took my cap gun or my, my little toy plastic pistol and shot him and he died. I mean, that's how it went every time. I won. The good guys always win. And so <clears throat> I can remember this one time in particular. Now, you can't do this today. And I don't recommend this and neither does uh, my mother. But the bottom line was just simply this. My dad worked third shift and so he'd come home and sleep. Well, on Saturdays while he was sleeping, mom would go in and wake him up and say, Dad, it's time, Robbie, it's time to get up. I got the boys there in the living room. They're watching cartoons. They're playing. You get up. I'm going to run this store and I'll be back here in just a little bit. Okay. Uh, that'll be fine. Well, dad couldn't get up. He worked third shift. So he, he was just in there sleeping. So me and my brother, and we had fun. I mean, just Jan, fun. I mean, fun. So we're playing good guys and bad guys and I'm playing hide and seek. And so I hide behind the couch with my cap gun. And as I'm hiding behind the couch, I'm waiting for my brother to come out. And when he comes around the corner, I jump out. And when I jump out from behind the couch, there was a paneling nail sticking out of the wall. And it caught me right above my ear right here. And man, it sliced me. My dad's sleeping. I'm bleeding. And I mean, it was, I mean, blood everywhere. My brother starts screaming. And about that time, my mom walks in the house. She loses it. What is going on here? Robbie, I said, get up. She scoops me up. And she takes me to the hospital. And, and uh, I, all I could say, I kept saying this. I, I hit my head on the wall. I hit my head on the wall. I hit my head on the wall. That's all I'd keep saying. Well, you know, that's a great thing. But when you tell the doctor in the ER that all you can hit your head on the wall, and mom's going, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. That was the closest I came to being taken away from my mom and dad. I mean, it was the, we were talking about it on the phone last night. She said, Shane, you just don't know how close it was before they were going to take you away from me. And, uh, uh, and thank God they didn't. And, and in fact, uh, my mom went back home and I had to have stitches and all this and just blood everywhere. And, and the point that I'm making is this. The point is that I bled everywhere and couldn't redeem anybody. That blood didn't redeem my brother. That blood didn't redeem my mom, my dad. My blood can't redeem anybody but Jesus' blood. Not only does it redeem, it reconciles us back to a relationship with God. And then here's the fifth thing. He closes with this. This goes all the way to the end. He talks about uh, the rationale of the New Testament. The rationale. Why, why about this? What, what's, what's the rationale on all of this? In verses 16 through 22, he's very specific. In verse 16 and 17, he says, all of this is to initiate the New Testament. Look at verse 16. Don't miss this. He says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be death of the testor. He's talking about a will. He's like a last will and testament. He says, look, in regards to a last will and testament, you think about it this way. That, that last will and testament does not come into effect until that person dies. So Jesus had to die. And upon his death, when the veil ripped from the top to the bottom, he's saying here that initiated the New Testament. It did away with Judaism. That's important. And then the second thing he says is to dedicate the New Covenant. Verses 18 through 23 says it's a dedication a dedication of this new covenant that God has. And the new covenant is this. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
And then he goes into, in verses 24 through 28, he concludes it. He wraps the whole thing up. He wraps it all up, and this is what he says in verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. They're just, it's just a copy. It's just a shadow. It's just a picture. It's just these figures of what is true. That is the old, the old uh, sanctuary. But he went into the heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, not yet that we should offer himself uh, often. He says he's not, he's not going into that holy and holies every day like they did in the, in the copy. They're not doing that. And he's not doing the once-a-year thing either like the high priest did every year for the blood of himself or others. He's not, not doing that either. Verse 26. For then must he often had suffered since the foundation of the world. He said if that be the case, then he's been doing this since the day of creation. He says he's not doing that. He says, but now... Once in the end of the world he hath appeared to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. When did that happen? On Calvary. And he says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. He says, remember, one day you're going to die. Oh, don't, don't miss this, friend. Don't, please, if you, you don't get anything. Get this. You have an appointment with death. Jesus paid the price so that you can have a relationship with God. You're going to die and you're going to stand before God and there's going to be a judgment. You will not get into heaven by saying, I was a good practicing Catholic. I was a good practicing Mormon. I was a good practicing Baptist. You're not going to get there on religion. Look at what he says there in verse 28. He says, so. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Jesus Christ died on the cross and bore my sins. I'm saved. He bore my sins. If you're saved, he's talking to you right there. He bore your sins. He's talking to those that he's writing to. You got saved. He bore your sins. There many of you got saved. There's a lot that hadn't gotten saved. So here's the question. Did Jesus die for just those that got saved or everybody in the whole wide world? He died for everybody. But you've got a personal responsibility to come to Christ. He will let you turn and walk away from him. And he says, unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He just simply says this, the next time Jesus comes, he's not coming to take away sins on this earth. He's coming to rule as the king. Man, if I had a secondary uh, title for this message, it'd be this, the king's coming. He's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready to see the king? Let's bow for prayer. You might be here today, and maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Dear friend, I got good news for you today. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Maybe you've never done just what we talked about and what I was preaching about today. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to save you, like Romans chapter 10 says. Dear friend, if that's you today, uh, then, then let me ask you, why? Why? Why have you not done that yet? Why are you hesitating? Why are you holding back, not giving your heart to Jesus? Right where you're sitting today, whether you're listening by way of video, whether you're listening by way of podcast, whether you're in this room today, listen to me, today's the day of your salvation. If, if you give your heart to Jesus. So that's something I want to do, preacher. 
then from your heart to God's heart, cry out to the Lord this morning. Would you say this in your heart? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. I pray you'd forgive me of my sins. I repent this morning, and I trust you as the Messiah. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.